Father, I pray that as we open your word today that you would speak to us and you would reveal yourself in power through it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Welcome. Uh, We are in the book of Genesis. Open up to page one of your Bible. Uh, We're in week two of our Genesis series. We're going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis over the next couple of months. Such an amazing, incredible, important book to understand. Last week we looked at just the first two verses of Genesis 1, which start like this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the best opening line to any story ever written. And Genesis is presented to us as a story. A story with a beginning, a story that begins with a creator, an intentional creator who had a purpose in mind, and that story is designed to tell us something about who that creator is, but not only about him, about you, and about how you relate to him, and what your purpose is in this world. It's it's an origin story of humanity, where we came from, why we are here, and then it gives us an identity today to, to understand what we're supposed to be doing and, and who we are and what makes us special. What does it mean to be a human? But then it also talks about our destiny. It talks about our future, what God has in store for us. It is our origin, it is our identity, and it is our destiny. And we learned that even today, God is doing a creative act. The ministry of Jesus announced the inauguration of a new creation. God is still in the business of taking that which is dark and disordered and chaotic and bringing light and order and life to those places. And when we engage with the story of Jesus, empowered by God's Spirit, the materials of our life begin to be reordered and remade into the image of Jesus. And we start a whole new story. So today, as we progress in the story of creation, we're back in Genesis 1, going through the whole chapter. But what I'm going to do, and I know Pastor Nick is going to work on whatever is going on with this sound right now, or is it just me that can hear it? He's trying, so bless him. Pray for our sound system right now. Uh, What we're going to do, we're Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and I'm not going to read the whole passage just for the sake of time, but I'm going to read verse 1 to 5 and then jump down to the end. But I do encourage you through this series to go home with the text we're reading, read it on your own, meditate on it, pray through it, and ask God to continue to reveal himself to you through it. So Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1 again, up to verse 5, then down to verse 31, and then on to chapter 2, verse 3. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God said, And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Down to verse 31. Then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Let me give you a quick illustration. Imagine a man showing up late 
to a live play. He sits down, and everything's already started, and he whispers to the person beside him, how did the play begin? So the person beside him says, well, the script was written by Susan Smith in the fall of 1931. He says, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. I don't care when the script was written. I want to know how the play began. Well, said his neighbor, you can't have a play without a script. That is how the play began. At this point, the person on the other side of the late man chimed in. He said, I know what you mean, the cast. The cast was hired in the spring. They held auditions in the offices upstairs. No, 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 said the man. I don't care about the casting. I want to know how the play began. Well, said the neighbor, you can't have a play without a cast. That is how the play began. Then the person behind him began to speak. I know what you're looking for. The set was designed and built in the summer, mainly with pine wood, recyclable plastics, and paint. No, 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 said the man. I don't care how and when the set was built. I want to know how the play began. Well, you can't have a play without a set. That is how the play began. No, said the man finally. I want to know what has happened since the curtain was drawn. Now, when I started this story and the man first asked, how did the play begin? What did you assume he was asking for? Did you assume he was asking about casting or set design or script writing? Probably not. Probably you assumed he was asking about the first act. Probably you assumed he wanted to know what in the story he missed in the time that he was late. The plot, the character, the development of the, of the script, sort of the, the plot. However, all three answers that he got were true. All three of them gave answers to his question that were true answers. They gave him information about how the play began, but they were given, given as answers with wrong assumptions about what he was looking for. So what's this illustration about? Well, if you or I ask the question, how did the world begin? We ask that question from a certain frame of mind, from a certain context, with certain assumptions. We live in the Western world with a worldview that asks questions from a certain perspective. If you ask people around you today, how did the world begin? You would likely get answers to do with physics and astronomy and geology. And those are probably the kinds of answers that modern people tend to look for when they ask that question. It's kind of like asking, what was the construction process of this play that we're watching right now? But if an ancient Hebrew about 3,500 years ago was asking Moses after being emancipated from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, if they asked Moses, how did this all begin? They probably weren't asking about the construction of the set. They were asking with different intentions, a different context, with different motivations and desires for what was going on. Understanding the script and their role in the story. Wanting to know what they were to do and who they were to be as a newly freed people. They were more interested in how God takes the chaos and disorder and darkness of life and turns them into order and purpose. And I made the point last week that we've often brought modern Western assumptions and questions to this ancient text. We ask it questions or force it it to give answers that it's not designed to give. But it's not a scientific text. It's not a philosophical paper. It's not a news report. It's not a memoir. It's a story. And the section of the story that we're looking at today is actually presented to us as a poem. A beautiful, incredible, deep, and lovely poem. 
When you approach a poem or a song, you approach it much differently than a news report or a research paper. It tells the truth about reality, but not in the same way. It's like the difference between how a police report talks about a murder over the weekend and how Dostoevsky talks about murder in his book, Crime and Punishment. One might be a little bit more straightforward than the other. Dostoevsky is very difficult to understand. You need to do a lot of work to figure out what he's talking about. And it's kind of the same with Genesis. You just need to do a little bit of work to figure out what it is trying to tell us about how the world began. So, how does Genesis talk about how the world began? Instead of primarily focusing on the mechanism of creation, it focuses on the agent of creation. That is God. And the purpose of creation. That purpose is bringing form and fullness to the world which was previously formless and empty. As Genesis 1 verse 2 says. So this pre-creation state discussed last week, formless and empty, Genesis 1 and 2 address that. What does God do to bring form and fullness to a formless and empty world? Think of it like building a house. You have an empty lot. It's formless and it's empty. It's not a habitable location. You can't live there. So a builder comes along with materials to create a structure. He builds a foundation and walls and floors and stairs and windows and a roof. He's formed a house. But at that point, it's still not a home. It's still empty. And so now he needs to fill the house. He needs to furnish it. He fills it with couches and tables and chairs and cabinets and beds and art and everything a house needs. And then what happens last? The house is occupied. The person who lives in the home shows up and takes residence there. The end of the creation story reveals the occupants, human beings. You and me, God formed and filled the universe and made a place for humans to dwell and to dwell with him. But that's next week. In fact, it's not just a house that God is building. He's building a temple. Reading the account of the uh, construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 39 and 40, you see a lot of parallels between the creation account and the construction of the tabernacle. And just, just for summary and reminder, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, as the people were wandering through the wilderness, they created what's called the tabernacle, which was a mobile tent that was set up as a place of worship, where they would offer sacrifices, where people could encounter God, have their sins forgiven. It was the place where God dwell. It was kind of the hot spot of his presence among the people. And then later on when the people entered into the promised land King Solomon built a permanent location, a brick and mortar temple. So when we use the word tabernacle or temple, we're talking about basically the same thing, but it's kind of two different eras in the history of where God's presence would dwell. So here in Exodus 39 and 40, the tabernacle is being created. And there's so many parallels between creation and this tabernacle. The original intent of creation was to create a space where God and humankind could dwell together. Looking at the construction of the temple in Solomon's day, you see that it's built out of uh, cedar wood, and there's all these columns that look like trees, and there's ornamental fruit everywhere. It's meant to look like the Garden of Eden. It's this space where God and humanity meet, and that's what God is doing in the garden, in the creation story. He's creating a temple in which he is going to put his image. 
But what's the twist at the end of the story? In, the, uh, in other religions of the ancient Near East, when they would build temples, they would construct them, the image of the god of that temple would be placed in the temple, but that image was of wood or stone or, 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 or metal. And then the spirit of that god was said to dwell in that image. Yet the twist in the Genesis account is that the image of our God is not a, a hand-constructed item of, of wood or gold or, 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 or clay. It's human beings, handcrafted by God himself. And our, his spirit is placed within us so that we can represent him here in this world. And when the rest of creation looks at human beings, they see the image, they see God in us. That was God's intent in this temple. He's building, he's building a tabernacle, a place for his presence to dwell. And so look, let's look more at this construction. Day one, God speaks, let there be light. We're told God separates light from darkness, calling it day and night. Day two, God speaks, let there be a space between the waters. So if you remember in verse two, the, the whole earth is just covered in chaotic waters and the spirit is hovering over those waters. Now God creates a separation of waters. And so you've got the waters of the earth, rivers and lakes and oceans. And then you have the waters of the heavens, the sky and the clouds. And when the ancients looked up and they saw the blue sky, they really saw it as water in the sky and then water on the earth. So God separates the waters, creating space between them. Day three, let the waters below flow together in one place so dry ground can appear. So God spreads the waters out so that he can bring dry ground because he wants to create a place for humans to dwell. And that day he also produces the biological life of vegetation. So, pause. What's happening so far in day one to three? What's he done? He's brought form to the formlessness. He's separated things. He's taken what's chaotic and given it order. As a builder, he's created a foundation and walls and a roof. Creation now has a form. It has a shape. And over the next three days, you'll see that God now fills what he has formed. He fills the house. Day four. Let lights appear in the sky, the sun, moon, and stars. God fills the empty sky. Let the waters swarm with, sorry, day five. Let the waters swarm with fish and other life. God fills the waters below with fish and the waters above with birds. God fills the empty waters. Day six, let the land produce every sort of animal. Let's make human beings in our image. He fills the land with creatures. So in days one to three, God formed the world. Days four to six, God filled the world. What was formless and empty is now formed and filled. Hebrew uh, authors love to create symmetry. And if you, if you, there's all kinds of it in this passage. We're not going to go into all kinds of details. But if you break down those six days again into two sections of three, and then you match them together, you see the symmetry that's being done here. So if you take, if you say, you know, one, two, three days of forming, and one, two, three days of, of filling, it goes like this. Day one of forming brought light, and day one of filling brought the sun, moon, and stars. Day two of forming brought separation of waters into the sea and sky. Day two of filling brought fish and birds to fill the sea and sky. Day three of forming brought dry land, and day three of filling brought creatures to that dry land. God is forming, and God is filling. And then, of course, the week of creation ends on day seven, the day on which God rested. Now, resting here for God is not about him being tired. He doesn't get tired. He's God. He's infinite. 
His rest is less about resting from weariness and more about enjoying the fruit of his labor. He's just created something incredible and he wants to enjoy it, to, to, to bask in the glory of what he has done. And it's the same kind of rest that he calls us to in the, the Sabbath rest today. If you want to learn more about uh, Jewish Sabbath and how that applies today to Christians, I, I preached a message on that in our Unhurried series in August. You can find that on the website. So seven days of creation... The number seven becomes a very significant number all through scriptures. It tends to represent the idea of completeness or even perfection. You see, the biblical authors, like I said, they love symmetry. And seven is a really symmetrical number. You've got three on one side and three on the other and one in the middle. It creates this mirrored number that plays so well with so many great images. But it has this idea of completion or perfection. You go all the way to the book of Revelation and the Holy Spirit is actually called the seven spirits of God. Not because the Holy Spirit is seven different spirits, because it's an image that says the Holy Spirit is perfect and complete in everything we need. And similarly, these seven days of creation talk about the completion and beauty and goodness of creation. The number seven is hidden everywhere in here. Verse one in the original Hebrew was seven Hebrew words. Verse two was seven words times two. That's 14. The section about the seventh day are seven words times five, 35 words. Each noun in verse one is repeated by a multiple of seven. God, or Elohim, is repeated seven times five. Heaven is repeated seven times three. Earth is repeated seven times three. All these sevens are there to emphasize a point. It's not some secret hidden Hebrew message. The point is this. God's creation is complete, and it's good. It's complete, and it's good. It's exactly as he intended it to be. Now you can look around today and you can say, well, there's, there's some not so good things in creation right now. And that comes up in the story. That's in chapter 3. But God's original intent, his original design, his original purpose was complete. It was good. It was everything he intended to be and is emphasized over and over and over again in this passage. As you can see, there's so much here. And, and we, we're only scratching the surface of, of all that Genesis 1 is trying to say to us. And of course, we're going to come back to this a lot and next week as we look at what it means for humans to be made in the image of God. But let me, let me dial in on two pastoral, practical applications for the rest of the message today. Number one, creation was created on purpose for a purpose. On purpose for a purpose. The existence of the universe, the existence of the world, the existence of you is not a happy accident. It's not a sad accident, depending on your perspective. Certain modern views of the world see the existence of the universe as an incredibly improbable reality. The physical requirements for our universe to exist are so improbable that it's basically impossible that we are here. Let alone the fact that this universe could support life, even for a universe to exist, is incredibly improbable. So the fact that we're here, this worldview says, we're just really, really lucky. Wow, it's incredible that we're here. Maybe we're lucky. Maybe we happen to have popped into an existence in defiance of all the odds, but the existential implications of that reality are incredibly depressing. Maybe we're lucky to be here, but our existence has no meaning. 
We're just a blip in the cosmological timeline. Human beings showed up not that long ago in the span of history, but we won't last very long, especially considering the scope of the history of the universe. Even the universe itself in this worldview is going to burn out of energy and collapse into nothingness as it succumbs to the laws of entropy. And everything you or I ever accomplished, produced, created, said, or did, is going to be forgotten eventually. Whether soon after your death, whether a hundred years or a thousand years after your death, but when everything just disappears, there's nothing left, nothing to, nothing to stick around, nothing to give anything that was ever accomplished any purpose or meaning. It's all just going to be gone. So if we're here just as an accident because we're lucky, there's no purpose behind that. It's just kind of a lucky us theory. And if where we're going is just darkness and emptiness and no purpose and no real meaning in the end, if our origin was meaningless and our destiny is meaningless, what follows? It means our identity is meaningless. It means our life is meaningless. If you came from no meaning and are going to no meaning, you're fooling yourself to assume that your life has meaning. And that's the story that we're being told. If there's no intentional, loving, personal creator behind the formation of the cosmos. But I'm here to tell you that there's a different story. A much better story. And even if it's hard to believe, I know you want to believe it. Because it's the only story that actually gives meaning to our present moment. That actually gives dignity to a human life, even if it's only alive for a few moments. God intentionally made the world. God intentionally made you and I. He did it for a purpose. He gave us meaning and value and dignity as image bearers, creatures with a vocation. He gave us a meaningful origin story and a meaningful destiny in a universe that isn't merely going to burn up and die, but it's going to be renewed by God's power and we will live and reign with Him forever. So it follows that in the middle, you have meaning. You have purpose. You have dignity. You have value because your origin is purposeful and your destiny is purposeful. Today, God has purpose. And your life has meaning whether it's going well or not. Your life has meaning in the good moments and the bad. Your life has meaning when you're producing something of value or even if you're just in a season of floating, unemployed, unengaged, not sure what to do. Your life has meaning if you're successful or if you failed. Because the meaning isn't dependent upon what you're doing. It's dependent on the fact that God created you with a purpose for a purpose. And you have an origin and a destiny with meaning. So creation was on purpose, for a purpose, by a God who knows you and loves you and has a plan for you, and you get to be a part of that unfolding story. Secondly, creation is a communication. Creation is a communication. Seven times God said, let there be, or let the land produce, some, some sort of communication that resulted in creation. Let there be light, let there be fish, let the ground sprout vegetation. Creation comes into being through his word, through the proclamation of God. You get this image of a king on his throne declaring edicts. The king doesn't do the work himself. The king just says what work needs to be done 
and the king is obeyed. And what's amazing about the king of the universe, he's so powerful that even nothingness responds to his word. Even nothingness obeys him. Isn't it amazing that he has given us the power to disobey him? It's a gift that's two-edged. We, give the, we get the freedom to respond in worship and have our lives transformed, but we also have the freedom to say no. Even nothingness didn't say no. Even nothingness said, oh, I guess I better do something. God's talking. God, the king, speaks, and things come into existence that were not. Think about it this way. When you look around you, everything you see around you in this world, God once said. All creation comes into being by the word of God, the declaration of God. And therefore, creation itself remains as a communication of God. A revelation of who God is. Creation can actually speak to us about God. Psalm 19, verse 1 to 4. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make Him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth. And their words to all the world. It's been said that God has written two books. He's written the Bible... And he's written creation. And both of them say something about him. Romans 1.20, Paul says this, Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. That's the same language as Genesis 1 verse 2, the heavens and the earth, the, the, uh, the sky and the land. They've seen the sky and land. They've seen the, the heavens and the earth. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Paul's saying in context that people who don't yet have the scriptures, they, they haven't yet heard about Jesus, creation itself can serve as a limited testimony of God's true nature and power. It doesn't say everything about God. God's fullest revelation is in Jesus Christ and he needs to be proclaimed and revealed to everybody. But Paul says creation is enough for people to reach out and say, there must be someone behind this. So there's no excuse to not call on the name of the Lord. In fact, the Greek philosophers are a good example of this. They experienced this themselves as they studied the universe. They came to believe that there was this universal logic behind it all. Something that gave everything meaning and purpose and held all things together. They called this the Logos. And Logos, in our Greek New Testament, is translated as word. For them, the Logos was the underlying purpose of the universe, some word that gave meaning to everything and somehow connected us to the divine. There's a word in the universe, they said, that gives meaning and connection to all things. Then the Apostle John comes along and he says, I know what that word is. And he starts his account of Jesus' life, not with the birth narrative, not with a genealogy like Matthew that, that went all the way back to Abraham or even to Adam. But John goes all the way back to the beginning with the same three words that Genesis starts with. He begins in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning. In the beginning what, John? In the beginning, the word already existed. The Greeks say, yeah, we, yeah, we know. The Logos brings all things together. It's, it's, it's behind everything. But John is referring to the word that spoke creation into existence in Genesis 1. 
Let there be, let there be, let there be. And John knows something that Genesis doesn't fully reveal to us, that the word is more than just a command from the king. That word is a person. He says the word was with God, and the word was God. This person somehow in community with God, yet also God himself. He existed in the beginning with God. And God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. That Greek logos idea that you guys think about, that's the word of God. That's the word of the God of the heavens and the earth. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God says, let there be light. Who is it? Who is this word? How does John know him? Verse 14. The word became human and made his home among us. You know what the language is behind this statement? John says the word tabernacled among us. The word became human or the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What was God doing in creation? He was building a tabernacle for his presence to dwell, to be with human beings. So we learn the fact that creation is a communication and God is not just a distant creator, he's a personal savior. He didn't just shape the world and disappear, he's close. He arrived, he took on flesh and made a home among his creatures to seek us who had gone astray, to save us and rebuild his home in a new creative act. Jesus, the word of God, declaring the word of God, showed up doing stuff that only God could do. He just with his mouth said things and they happened. He said to a storm, quiet, be still and it obeyed him. He said to a dead person, come out of your tomb, and the dead person obeyed him. He said, let there be, let there be, let there be, and the world was shaped by his word, and Jesus speaks to us today. He speaks life over you. He speaks form over you. He speaks fullness over you and over his church. And he's building a new temple. Did you know that? He's tabernacling among us. Why? Because we are called the temple of God. We are the place where God dwells. Jesus wants to come and live among his people again in a new creative act to bring new form and function to a people who have gone astray and have been broken and full of darkness and chaos and sin. But he comes and he speaks words of forgiveness and life and transformation making all things new by his word. Jesus wants to be near to you today. So how did the world begin? It's a good question. How did the story begin? But sometimes the question people are asking that's more important is, is there a way to begin again? Is there a way to transform my story because it's gone way off a cliff? And the message of creation and the message John wants to bring us in John chapter 1 is that yes, yes, all it takes 
is a word from heaven. And that word has already been spoken over you. He says, you're mine. He says, I love you. He says, you have purpose and dignity. And in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. You are a child of God. You are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And the only thing stopping it is that two-edged gift he gave us of free will. Because he doesn't force himself upon you. He says, will you let me in to live in you, to live among you, to shape you, to speak over you? Will you let me in? And that's a question that you have to answer yourself. Would you bow your heads with me? Prayer team, please come to the front. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for your creative power. The way you created this world, this universe, and each one of us with a purpose, with a design, with an origin that has meaning, with a destiny that has meaning, and a life that has meaning, no matter how terribly it's gone, Lord God. You bring meaning to every life. You bring hope to every situation. You bring order into chaos and light into darkness and good into that which is evil. And so Lord, we ask today that you continue that creative act that you inaugurated through Jesus, that new creation in Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and that Word has become flesh and dwells with us. Thank you, Jesus. You have poured out your spirit so we can continue to experience your presence even today. And you continue to speak over to us through the scriptures, through the spirit. Lord, you are speaking today. And Lord, we are asking for your power to be poured out once again into the dark places, into the chaotic spaces, Lord God, to bring order into the chaos. Lord, if there's anybody here today where you've been knocking, you've been asking, can I come in? Can I dwell with you? God, I pray they would open up their hearts to you right now. join me in prayer just say yes in your heart Lord Jesus I need you I have sinned I have gone astray I've walked away from God I've gone my own way but I'm coming back to you forgive me my sin fill me with your spirit give me a new story to live in today in Jesus name everybody say amen stand with me we're going to finish with that song what a beautiful name talks about the word of Christ in the beginning being with God his creative act that happens in the power and the beauty and the majesty of his name today and if all you can do in this song is just call out on the name of Jesus the power in that name can start to meet whatever's going on in your heart and mind today if you maybe you're somewhere here today for the first time you're saying I need Jesus in my life. I need to walk with Jesus. Come and meet someone down here for prayer. If you have a need, if you have sickness, whatever is on your heart, whatever you're dealing with, please come. You can come and meet with someone. You can just come and pray on your own. Feel free. Let's respond to God in these last few moments.